Okay, here we go. Deuteronomy 22, verse 28 and 29. If a man happens to meet a virgin who's not pledged to be married and rapes her, and they're discovered, you have to look elsewhere to find out what happens if they're not. He shall pay her father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the young woman, for he has violated her. He can never divorce her for as long as he lives. And many years ago, I raised the question, with this church, does that represent the redemptive God that we know and worship? The one we pray to and the one we enjoy? If it does, why don't we obey that command today? If it doesn't, What's it doing as a command in the Mosaic Law? It's a theological conundrum that we have to work through. Because the Old Testament very much talks about sins of all nature, including sexual assault. It's very much in there. Uh, Why didn't God just say, don't rape? Why do you tell them what to do when they do rape? Why is that? It seems like it would have been a lot easier for us, a lot cleaner, if God had just written a book a manual and said, don't rape. But he doesn't do that. By the way, he also doesn't say don't have slaves. Doesn't say that either. He uh, never says don't commit genocide. There's many, many places in, that the Old Testament talks about that the Bible never actually says don't do that. If you go back and read the um, arguments before the Supreme Court, around the whole abolition of slavery, you'll find that a good portion of them were motivated, were rooted in biblical theology that said it was okay to have slaves because the Bible never says not to have slaves. How did we come to the conclusion that that's wrong if the Bible didn't tell us that? So at the very beginning of this, we have to raise the question, does the Bible give us the end-all answer for every ethical situation? No, it doesn't. So what I want to do today is talk to you through, talk through with you a way of thinking about these very complex passages. I've maintained for two decades now that as long as we talk about the peace, love, and happiness texts, we look a lot like Hinduism. They have very similar language. But it's in these passages here, and I'm going to look at two of them today, It's in these passages here where Christianity begins to distance itself from every other religion in the world. Because our God doesn't shy away from messy, messy, ugly, horrible situations. He dives right in. Uh, When I preached on this eight years ago, I asked the question, how many of you have ever heard this, this passage preached on? I don't think I had a single hand go up. I know I never had. And yet, when I got to seminary, these are the passages I was curious about. And when we, I couldn't wait to cover them in the classes. When we got to them, we skipped right over them. Skimmed them very quickly because they're very tough. They're very challenging. There's a whole series of these commands that we know very little of what to do. Historically, the church hasn't known how to address them. So those are the passages that fascinate me. Those are the ones I took my electives in. Those are the passages that I've spent 25 years wrestling through to make sense of how could they represent the God that we know to be redemptive. 
ready? Okay. Let's go back and start with a couple of um, simple ideas. How many of you believe God is redemptive? Is that everybody? We just sang about it, didn't we? We just raised our hands, a bunch of us said, Our God saves, our God redeems. Isn't that the very character of God, that he is redemptive? And so when we get into these passages, we have to start with this assumption. Do away, if you were raised this way, do away with the old uh, analogy that God is a God of wrath in the Old Testament and a God of grace in the New Testament. That just makes him bipolar. Which he's not. So we have to go back and rethink the way he interacts with us. And when you begin to change your perspective, you begin to notice all kinds of details that you hadn't noticed before. I raised in the class on Tuesday night, two weeks ago, when God takes them out of Exodus, they're murmuring and complaining about food and water and all this stuff. And the Israelites, bear, I mean, the Egyptians bearing down on them and God never punishes them. And then they get to Mount Sinai, and from then on he does. Why does he not punish them before? Why does he punish them after? Because at Mount Sinai, they made a promise to do all that, the God, all that God had said. He said, okay, if that's the relationship you're willing to commit to, then I'm going to hold you accountable to it. And so when you start with the premise that God, at the very core of his essence, his being, he is redemptive, and he cares about every human and that begins to shed different light on these really tough passages. By the way, I believe that's the heart of the gospel. God cares about every human. We serve the one true living God who cares about every person on the planet. One of the questions I've raised more than once, and I'm the one that's raised it, is that you're sitting next to somebody on an airplane, and you say, what's that book you're reading? So it's a mystery. Or it's a book on Western Civ, because I'm taking a college class. And they look at this, and they say, what's that book about? Our answer has to encompass genocide, sexual assault, mistreatment of women, slaves. It has to encompass all that. So the way I answer that question, this book is about the story of the one true living God who loves his creation so much that he will compromise for the sake of the gospel. You see, the Bible is one long story comprised of a thousands of sub-stories that all have in common that God compromises for the sake of the gospel. No, he never wanted rape. No, he never wanted genocide. He didn't want any of that. No, he never wanted slavery. Even Jesus, when he said, render unto Caesar that but what belongs to Caesar is an act of compromise. Because Caesar and the Roman government was funding euthanasia and fantasize, abortion, Worship of many gods. And he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So that they will see your good works, Peter says, on the day that he visits us. That's an act of compromise. So I've, I've figured out, I think, and I'm not by myself, with a whole lot of other people in the discussion. Whenever God steps into our world and he speaks or acts, he does three things. Three things. He begins the process of restraint. Restraining evil practices. Okay? He begins to restrain evil practices all around us. 
Number one. Number two is he introduces human dignity. And number three is that he he points the way to true north. I think it was C.S. Lewis that argued many years ago that all of us have a moral compass that's just broken. Can't find true north. So the study of world civilizations has taught us that we're trying to figure it out because every civilization comes up with rules. But morality can't be found accidentally. It comes because God intervenes. And so he introduces dignity and he introduces the direction we should begin to head. And so the model that we're going to look at this morning is the same model every one of you have personally experienced. When you came to know the Lord, everything very slowly began to change. And the more you come to know the Lord, the more you are transformed into his image. In other words, the more human you become. As you walk that road, years and years of faithfulness, you become more gracious. You become more loving. You become more compassionate. become more forgiving. And so as you walk that road, you're shaped more and more to his image. Well, there's no difference between and the, and the, uh, God acting at a national or a corporate level. It's the same. Society does not move fast. We don't want to move fast. When is the Civil Rights Amendment? 64? We still haven't figured it out, have we? And we want to. Oh, we've made some gains and some progress, but culture moves very, very slowly. So I'm going to take you to a passage outside of the sexual assault passages to illustrate it. It's in Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25, this is what it says. And if you want to look it up, I don't have any verses up overhead. Then you can pull one of the Bibles out. Ask yourself this question. What would happen if we follow this today? When people have a dispute, they are to take it to court. And the judges will decide the case, acquitting the innocent, condemning the guilty. If the guilty person deserves to be beaten, the judge shall make them lie down, stretch them out, have them flogged or beaten in his presence, with the number of lashes the crime deserves. Now, you have to understand, beating in the ancient world wasn't a, easy, wasn't a nice process. Picture a baseball bat, something hard to the lower back. Okay? So the judge can, can prescribe the number of times, number of lashes the crime deserves, but the judge must not impose more than 40 lashes. So you can beat somebody up to 40 times. What would happen if we did that today? We'd go to jail, wouldn't we? It goes on. If the guilty party is flogged more than that, your fellow Israelite will be degraded in his eyes. Okay, so I said three things happen. Number one is he begins to restrain the bad, evil practices around Israel. Uh, we now have, through archaeology, we have records of what the adult discipline laws were. In Egypt alone, commensurate with the time when this was given, okay, it was real simple. You could beat somebody 200 times. And you could also create five open wounds. There was no limit placed on a husband and wife, how much a husband could. So right off the bat, we've gone from up to 200 with five open wounds down to 40. That's an act of restraint. You understand? 
That's an act of restraint. If you're going to be a criminal, would you rather be a criminal in Egypt or Israel? But then I said the second thing he does is that he introduces dignity into the equation. You see, there was no statements of dignity in the Egyptian uh, law codes, adult discipline codes. That wasn't even conceived of. But he says here, if the guilty party is flogged more than that, your fellow Israelite will be degraded in his eyes. That's the introduction of dignity. We're made in the image of God. There's no way they could have gotten to that piece of information. One of, the, one of the challenges we have as Americans is that we have values in our culture that originally derived in the early days from Christian principles. Those values are not innate to us. They're here because you've been taught them. When you travel to third world countries, come with me. You'll see what nations look like that don't have the same values we do. Dignity is not a guarantee. It feels natural to us because we are raised with it. But there's nothing innate in here for that. From what I can tell, for example, um, prior to the Ten Commandments, none of the surrounding nations had language on murder related to morality. It was all related to utility. So if I murder anyone of your family, we're not going to get along. But we have no compunction about murdering the people on the other side of the county. It wasn't a moral statement. It was a statement of how we're going to live together in peace. So God speaks through the giving of the Ten Commandments and the Pentateuch, and morality enters the discussion. And here it is, dignity, right here. You don't want to degrade fellow Israelites. You don't want to degrade them. That's dignity. So you can see principle number one, he's restrained from up to 200 lashes and five open wounds to 40 he introduces dignity. You don't want them to be degraded in your eyes. And he points the way to true north. Because all of a sudden now, this is brought into the court system. Vengeance is not allowed. That's why he starts off. When people have a dispute, they're to take it to the court. No longer is vengeance going to rule the way we operate as a people group. We now take it to people that are wiser. That are, that are objective, that are outside of the problem, can make decisions for us. And that begins to point the way which we can't get to. The other nations could not get that direction. And that points to what C.S. Lewis that said, that points to true north. Now we have a direction. So by the time we get to Jesus, we have do good to those who hate you. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. That would have never happened if we had not been given this passage. Or God would have had to have found another way. Okay, so let's go back to the passage. Chapter 22. Listen to it again. And then I'm going to read to you a set of the laws outside of Israel. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and rapes her and they are discovered... He must pay her father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the young woman, for he has violated her. He cannot divorce her uh, ever, for as long as he lives. Okay, we have, um, we have a copy of the Assyrian laws. This comes from the, what's called the Middle Assyrian period. So this is about 300 years after this was written. But it captures the flavor of how the Assyrians thought about this whole question. So just listen to this. Remember... There's nothing innate within us that's going to drive us to morality. If a man forcibly seizes and rapes a virgin or a maiden who's residing in her father's house, who's not engaged, 
In other words, not married. Because the moment they got engaged in the ancient world, you were legally, the woman legally belonged to a new, another man. Because the, the father paid a price for her. She was basically sold. She's property. She belongs to the other man. So if that happens, if a man forcibly seizes and rapes a maiden who's residing in her father's house, who's not married, within the city or the main thoroughfare or a granary or during the city festival, somewhere in the city limits, okay, the father of the virgin, the father of the maiden, shall take the wife of the perpetrator. You following this? shall take the wife of the perpetrator and hand her over to be raped. After they are done raping her, she shall not return to her husband, but he can have her, the father of the maiden, for the same purpose. The father shall give his daughter who is the victim of the rape, into the protection of the household of her fornicator and has to pay triple silver for the maiden. The father can give the daughter in marriage to whomever he chooses. It's a violent world, isn't it? Do you believe God is redemptive? Do you actually really believe it? Now listen to this verse. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and rapes her and they are discovered, he shall pay her father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the young woman for he has violated her. He can never divorce her for the rest of his life. Okay, principle number one. He's beginning to restrain evil practices. They can't take the wife of the man and hand her over to be raped. He's beginning that slow journey of correcting the mess. The world is a mess. Theologians call it total depravity. It is an absolute mess. That's why I said, don't be deceived. It's an illusion. Have 5,000 coffees with the people in this county and you'll learn the truth about what's going on. It's a mess. He didn't, God didn't create the mess. We did. So God steps into it and begins to correct the problems one at a time. Number one is you're not going to hand the other man's wife over to be raped. Number two, the other man's wife doesn't become your property. You see, in the middle of Syrian laws, it was all about protecting the man because the woman was an investment. He got paid for her. But in our God, it's not about the dignity of the man. What does he say? He must marry the woman for he has violated her. It's not the father who's been violated. It's the young woman who's been violated. That is a shift in world history. Prior to that, it was all financial transaction. I own a young virgin, and she's worth something to me. I can name the price. You violate her, one of you men, now she's not worth anything. Okay? 
Therefore, I get to have your wife, and you have to pay me triple the silver for that, that loss. Might as well be a cow. And God steps in and says, no, you violated the young woman, not the man. See how dignity begins to flow into the conversation? Flows right into it. That's the God that we serve. And it begins to point the direction for the first time in world history. You mean these young women, they're the ones that have been violated? So in Israelite culture, we know from the ancient rabbis that what they did with this, would they allow the woman to begin to have say-so in who they married. They already had a model of that with Numbers uh, Numbers 31 with the daughters of Zelophehad. They refused to marry the men that the men said they're going to marry. And they took it to God and God said, they have a valid case, let them marry who they want. So this is a turning point in world history where the violation is no longer against the father, it's against the young woman, and now she can choose who she's going to marry. We have an example of this actually in the scriptures, the story of Amnon and Tamar. Both children of David, different mothers. Amnon had a thing for Tamar, you may remember the story, and he calls her, he invites her into the bedchambers, and he rapes her tends to be sick. She says, don't do this detestable thing. Ask my father, he will give me to you as a wife. And he rapes her anyway. And then when he's done, he kicks her out, as is common with rape. She's now worthless. So he kicks her out, slams the door behind her. As he's closing the door, she said, please don't do this, this second detestable thing. Ask my father, he'll give me to you as a wife. And so he kicks out. She's standing out on the streets. She does the only thing she can do. She's no longer a virgin, so she's not marryable anymore. So she rips her sleeves. That's a statement that she's been violated. Talk about public hum- uh, humility, shaming. We talked about that last week, didn't we? And so Absalom takes her into his home and protects her for two years. What David should have done was walked over and said, I know what you did to my daughter, and here's what the law says. You're going to marry her, and you're going to restore her honor in the presence of all of her friends. And if you don't, guess what? We're going to drag you out in the streets and stone you. And he refuses to do it. And that's the first step in that nine-year slide where David loses the kingdom to Absalom. He compromised the law right then with his daughter. And it went downhill from there. And so these laws, when you look at them from our vantage point, several thousand years later, 3,500 years later, they don't look very, you're going, what? But if you lived back at that time and you were to see that language, the young woman has been dishonored. I don't know what that would feel like in any scenario. But it had to have been better than it's all about the father who lost the financial transaction. You see how God is redemptive? Can you see it in this passage? Is this what God's ultimate heart is? Absolutely not. But it, it points the direction to true north. And so the Israelites begin to work on that. So by the time Jesus comes, and then Paul, 1 Corinthians 7 He says, husbands and wives are equal. 
The husband's body doesn't belong to him. It belongs to the wife. The wife's body doesn't belong to her. It belongs to the husband. Here's what that looks like in our marriage. You want to have fun tonight? She says, sure, do the dishes. <laughs> we have different ways of viewing it. But the point is that we now are in a partnership together, which wasn't the case back here. So God steps into a very messy world and begins to shift the core values. It's the young woman who has been degraded. It's not the father. And now she has choice. What's going to happen to her? So by pointing the way to true north, when the time we get to healthy sexual ethics in 1 Corinthians epistles, epistles of Corinthians, we don't, he doesn't have to say it. We figured it out. Women are property. Women have dignity. Women are equal. They have value. They're made in the image of God, just like the men. But they had to be taught that. So this one little two-section verse right here moves world culture in a very different direction, which gets, to, gets us to where we are today in the New Testament in the church. And in the church, every single one of you has dignity. No one wants to go back to the Assyrian laws. In fact, no one wants to go back to the Israelite laws because we've moved way beyond that in the New Covenant with the Holy Spirit. And so that's what God is doing in all these passages. I'm not going to have time or take the time to take you through all of them, but He's doing those three things. He's beginning to restrain evil. He's beginning to introduce human dignity into the equation so we begin to look at each other differently and in the process points us to true north so that moral compass, now with the Holy Spirit, can now lock in and say, here's where we're going. So that every woman sitting here has dignity. Everyone. You understand? You get it? Every one of these passages that you read that you have no idea what to do, go talk to Judy Deal. <laughs> Come talk to either of us. But start with the assumption that God practices redemption in everything he does. When he steps into culture, he's fixing something that is broken because of our sin. Sometimes we wish he would move faster. But it's no other religion has these three things built into their documents, their philosophies. None. We do serve a true living God who cares about every human. Father, thank you, for, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for being a kind and generous God who wasn't willing to let us, let us live with our own devices. But you began to show us the way. We... Uh, we delight in being called your children. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.